What's going on, podcasting world? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. First episode we're recording in July. Yes. Cole, what's up, man? Feels great to be back in the studio on a rainy, what is it, Tuesday afternoon? Yes, it is Tuesday. And uh, yeah, it's been a minute again. This is literally the same conversation we have for the last four episodes. Yeah. Where we're like, maybe we shouldn't. Maybe should, we should pretend. We should probably just not mention that anymore. Maybe we should pretend like this we record the new, them. This is the new us. Yeah, I guess it is. We record once every month. Yeah, once a month. That's all you're getting, guys. <laughs> Sorry. No, we're gonna we're gonna try really hard to step it up finally. But we will. This whole uh, not being in the same schedule thing is really a buzzkill. Yes, makes it difficult. Got to figure it out. So, if you guys know anybody who has like a winning lottery ticket, so we can just really focus on this, that would be outstanding. Then we could quit our day jobs. Right. Well, that would kind of go against. Maybe we just like. That wouldn't be a good. Yeah, then we'd be like, these guys don't know anything. They don't even work in a. <laughs> they just podcast. They're yeah. just random people talking. Yeah, that probably wouldn't go. You had yeah. to at least have one day in the clinic to be like, I'm an actual clinician. We would just we'd win the lottery so we could run our own clinic, work right. at, work the way we want, have mm-hmm. the same schedule. Yeah. Yeah. I'd give myself all kinds of honorary degrees because mm-hmm. I bribe the school. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you guys all Just kinds add of funding. Even more letters to the end of your PhD name. with a little with a little <laughs> honorary with yeah. uh, in parentheses. Yeah, I got a PhD basically. <laughs> Do you know anything about research? Mm-mm, not nope. a thing. They just gave it to me. It's easy. <laughs> I always thought that was pretty funny. All right, so what are we talking about today? Uh, I think we're going to talk about something which I'm surprised we have not talked about yet. I don't even think we've ever touched on this. It probably has never even come out of our mouth, the word. Leg amputation. (laughs) We're going to talk about orthopedic surgery. (laughs) And that's why we've never talked about it. No. um, Diabetic ketoacidosis. Yes. And we'll also touch a little bit on HHS, which is um, hyperglycemic, or hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state, which is similar but different. Um so yeah, there's a distinguishing between those two. So we'll kind of go through uh, how to identify if that's happening, what's important about it, the treatment, which isn't too complicated. Um, I'm sure somebody in an acute setting wouldn't agree with that, but as far as what you use, it's not too complicated. Um, and yeah, a little bit of patho and background on it too. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I did want to say that uh, I have a little bit of background on something which applies to other topics we've done, but I think this is appropriate because... This can be, you know, definitely a life-threatening situation. But I'm going to take us back to 1889, okay? So okay. about 140 years ago we in really Germany. Really sound effects machine right now. I forgot it. Oh, well. We haven't had that. I, a long bro, time. We haven't had that in like a year. I know, but I feel like this is the perfect time for it, and I ruined <laughs> to it. to bring it totally back out. Yeah, sorry, okay. guys. Okay, sorry, continue. Well, we're in 1889. We're in Germany. Okay. Uh, we have two German researchers who... Uh, we're kind of looking at the pancreas gland in dogs and realized that when it was removed, the dogs would soon die um, from symptoms that were similar to diabetes. Um, this led to the idea that the pancreas was the site uh, where they called it a pancreatic substance, but where we fer- that we later learned insulin was produced. So insulin being the um, operant word. Later, experimenters narrowed this search to what they termed the islets of Langerhans, uh, which of course is the fancy name for the specialized cells in the pancreas that release insulin. So in 1910, a Sir Edward Albert Sharpie Schaefer suggested that only one clin- chemical substance was missing from the pancreas in patients with diabetes. Uh, and he decided to call this insulin, which is from the Latin word insula, which means island. 
Uh, so this is kind of the origin of us realizing we're going to need insulin, or I guess the lack of insulin is what causes diabetes, because they really didn't have a treatment before this. Before this, if you had diabetes, then you went on a significantly carbohydrate-restricted diet. So they realized that sugar played a part here, um, but you know, down to as little as 400 to 450 calories per day, and people would often die of starvation before they would actually die from complications from diabetes. So this is all pre-insulin. So in 1921, a young surgeon, Frederick Banting, and his assistant figured out how to remove insulin from a dog's pancreas. Um, and then they later on teamed up with a John McLeod and his assistant. Um, so in, they effectively created the first um, insulin, or at least harvest the first insulin from the pancreases of cattle. 1922, Leonard Thompson was a 14-year-old boy dying from diabetes in Toronto. He was the first ever person to receive an injection of insulin. And within 24 hours, his dangerously high blood glucose levels dropped to near normal levels. And he went on to live a much longer life than he would have without insulin. Um, hmm. Banting and McLeod earned a Nobel Prize in 1923. Later on in 1982, we got synthetic insulins. The first synthetic insulin was Humulin. And so on, so on. Now we can treat DKA in HHS. And the good other good news, we have so many different brand names of, like, Things like insulin glargine. Yeah. So we can just so we have to memorize a bunch of names. Learn there. all of them. But they're life-saving. It's yeah, important. that's awesome. Um, I was wondering, like, if you might hear, like, a researcher like that, like, oh, they found out that the if you take a dog's pancreas out, yep. I was thinking of, like, uh, Sherlock Holmes, where he's like, does these experimentations uh -huh. on, like, their big bulldog or whatever he is. I'm wondering, like, I wonder how many of those guys were like, hmm, I need a dog. Right. I don't have any money to buy a new dog. <laughs> so this one's getting old. Let's so, take his pancreas uh, out. Just don't tell the wife. Yep, yeah, right. I don't know, sweetheart. He he just has a hole in him now. See, what ma it makes me wonder how many other things they took out of these dogs. You know what else he can't live with? His heart. If you take <laughs> his heart out, he immediately doesn't so that do That was good. the first thing we tried, and yeah. we realized that was yeah, not it. He does have symptoms of heart failure immediately. <laughs> So, yeah, there's a lot of research happening. That would have been crazy back then. Yeah, to be on the cutting edge of all that. So we're almost 100 years removed from the first uh, insulin injected into a, a human being. Tell table. you what, being born this side of uh, history, much yeah. better. Yeah, it's so pretty nice. We got iPhones now and all kinds <laughs> of stuff. It's much better. I uh, highly recommend it. It's preferred. So you mentioned insulin deficiency. So obviously insulin is there to take that glucose that our bodies so desperately need and push that into the cells because cells obviously use that for developing uh, or producing adenosine triphosphate or cellular energy. And so glucose is one of those things that we obviously have to have. And in order to get it to the cells, we need insulin. So when you start having a deficiency in said insulin, um, you also have this kind of um, counter-regulatory hormone release. So you can get glucagon, which is always the, the counterpart of insulin that we think about that keeps everything in balance. But lower insulin, so now you get this big surge of glucagon, you get increase in cortisol, which is a big stressor, growth hormone, epinephrine. Um, and this is basically going to trigger your body to 
it's a signal that it's under a lot of stress. And when you're under a lot of stress, it's like, I need to produce a lot of energy. So I need some sugar. And even though that sugar's already there, your cells don't know that because they didn't look out the window. And so it releases all the diff- the sugar stores, like the glycogen from the liver, starts breaking down uh, other areas, like so fats, um, you know, different areas in the body. Gluconeogenesis gets activated, glycogenolysis, like I said, from the liver. Um, and then lipolysis is the fat cells. It actually takes fat and it Atkins diets that uh, process and spits out the glucose, which then still no insulin. So it just continues to run the, the sugar up and continues to make everything uh, all out of whack and out of balance. Right. And um, the lipolysis of the fat is going to increase your serum free fatty acids. Um, hepatic metabolism of these free fatty acids, they use that as an alternative energy source because your body, like Mike said, the cells can't take up the glucose for energy as much. Um, And it's going to result in um, ketosis is the end result. And the reason being you're going to accumulate um, a lot of acidic intermediaries or in metabolites, ketones, keto acids, um, and that's going to lead to um, your blood becoming acidic and um, an acidosis. So that's why they call it diabetic ketoacidosis. It's a state of elevated blood glucose um, because of lack of insulin resulting in an acidotic state, which is uh, very severe. Uh, The ketone bodies generally include acetone, uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate, and acetoacetate, uh, though ketone, I'm sorry, acetone is the only true ketone. The um, Acetoacetic acid is a keto acid, and the beta hydroxybutyrate is a hydroxy acid. But they'll kind of refer to them all as ketone bodies, and that's what's uh, floating around um, in the body, which causes the acidosis. So when you have these this buildup of these ketones and keto acids, um, especially beta hydroxybutyrate, that's going to, in most cases, induce things like nausea and vomiting. Um, which then leads to fluid electrolyte loss and further uh, the instance of dehydration. And so, so a lot of these patients, when especially in the case of like DKA, like we're talking about, they're going to present with dehydration. Uh, they're going to have really excessive thirst and they're going to be peeing a ton. And so they're, they're, they're really dehydrated a lot of times. And then now you have these ketones sort of inducing this nausea, which makes things even worse. And, um, sometimes you'll hear patients talk about like, um, a fruity, like odor coming from the breath. That's actually because, um, like Cole said, acetone is one of those ketones that's produced. And that actually, uh, makes that fruity breath odor. Um, and that's kind of a characteristic of patients that are experiencing ketosis. Right. And, um, DKA is primarily in type one diabetes patients. So patients with, um, a lack of intrinsic insulin, um, altogether, though it can happen in type two diabetes patients, uh, which some people just think it's entirely type one, but it can happen in type two as well. Frequently, um, an initial, hospitalization for DKA is a diagnosis for type 1 diabetes. It's the first time that it's ever realized because it gets to a point um, where they need to be hospitalized for it. Um, Commonly, early symptoms um, are the, well, the regular symptoms for hyperglycemia that you would imagine. So polydipsia, um, polyuria, so you're going to get excess urination and increased thirst, um, though there are other signs of DKA like uh, just generalized weakness and fatigue, malaise, nausea and vomiting, like Mike said, they might have rapid weight loss. If they're a newly diagnosed type one patient, they could have that. 
Um, if they are a previously diagnosed type one and they have a history of missing insulin injections, um, due to various things like psychological reasons, vomiting, um, or, or they're on an insulin pump and the insulin pump fails, which does happen in, especially in, um, adolescents that can lead to DKA. Uh, you also may have decreased perspiration. They're not going to sweat as much or altered consciousness. They might be disoriented, uh, confused, uh, even a coma. Uh, can happen though it is not necessarily common and i think too I, I think a lot of times when we think of things like dk we're thinking of a patient first finding out that they have like type 1 diabetes um you know or, or type 2 diabetes in some you know rarer cases but it's not always the case i mean there's certain things that if a patient has um type 1 diabetes there's certain things that can kind of exacerbate the situation and, and kind of push them into DKA. So certain types of infections and things and, um, Klebsiella pneumoniae, um, is, is one of the leading causes of bacterial infections that precipitates out, um, DKA, uh, which I actually wasn't even aware of until we started kind of looking through material for this episode. Right. Um, and there's a, I was looking through some information. So ASHP, I don't know if the deal is still going on, but they were offering their clinical, uh, or their, uh, critical care, like recertification guide and the episode or the uh, case that they have for their um, DKA, the uh, patient case mm-hmm. is accompanied by community acquired pneumonia. Oh, interesting. And uh, as they kind of lump those two together, cause that's like the kind of the precipitating factor and the patient goes into DKA and then they kind of, they treat both, uh, they discuss both topics right. at the same time in the form of a patient case. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Cause yeah. And like you said, infection is a very common reason to go into DKA. Yeah. So as far as um, approach considerations when you're trying to decide if this is what a patient has, um, if you're looking at labs or you're just doing a physical exam, on examination, general findings might be uh, dry skin, labored breathing, dry mucous membranes, uh, ill appearance. They might be tachypneic or have hypotension. They might be um, tachycardic, so they're going to have a high heart rate, or their um, temperature could be low. As far as lab values that are used, um, it can vary, but usually um, DKA is going to be hyperglycemia over 250 milligrams per deciliter, though it can be much higher than that. Um, I guess that's a minimum threshold they would consider. Your bicarb is going to be low, so probably below 18, 18 milliequivalents per liter. And then uh, the pH is going to be in the acidotic range, so below 7.3, all accompanied by ketonemia, so in the blood, ketones in the blood, and ketonuria. Um, ketones in the urine, which are you know primarily found with dipsticks, or I guess they could do it with a blood sample as well. And I, you know, I guess the other thing too to mention is what what's the potential negative um, complications associated with DKA? You know, other than dehydration and things like that, you know, there's there's lots of things that are a patient's more at risk for if they're experiencing an episode of DKA. Um, obviously, things like sepsis and then certain like um, ischemic processes can kind of be activated. So we have to worry about things like MI. Um, DVT can be a potential um, side or complication of DKA. Um, you can have a CVA, you know, a patient has a cerebrovascular accident. You can have erosive gastritis. Um, there's several things that can go wrong when a patient's, you could be, uh, much more susceptible to catching a severe infection, um, more commonly. So like UTIs, things like that, you're obviously spilling a lot of glucose into the urine, making the, you know, growth medium a little bit more, uh, enticing to bacteria to grow. This is also why these patients still a lot of times are 
experiencing weight loss if they're newly diagnosed because you're peeing out all that glucose and calories are following. And so the patient's losing weight. They're just peeing out a lot of calcium. I mean, the glucose rather, and you're going to be more susceptible to um, infections and things like that. So definitely a lot of complications as well. And the dehydration part of it is something that's usually the main concern when a patient's right. first presenting. Yeah. And so to prevent those complications and to get them rehydrated quickly, goals of therapy are usually going to include correcting the fluid loss quickly with IV fluids or so not necessarily like extra quickly, but just getting that on board soon. Um, then addressing the hyperglycemia, usually with insulin, almost exclusively with insulin, um, correction of the uh, electrolyte disturbances, particularly potassium loss from the uh, dehydration or even from the uh, insulin um, action, and then correcting the acid-base al- uh, balance, you could have a um, increased anion gap and hyperosmolarity. Uh, and then if they did present because of concurrent infection, like a pneumonia, treating the pneumonia as well. So those would kind of be your main goals to, to address when you're initiating a patient. And also it's important to kind of think about differential diagnosis as well. So what else could be kind of going on? You got to think about things like salicylate toxicity, um, lactic acidosis, uh, could be, um, alcoholic ketoacidosis, appendicitis, um, acute pancreatitis. There's several things that could also lead the patient to have some of these similar symptoms, or at least, you know, maybe have been the underlying condition that led to this. So um, that's why as far as like really Cole was saying earlier, getting the right labs and all that can kind of help rule out some of the other potential diagnoses. Yeah. And addressing severity. So this is already, if, if this is what you've decided it is, it's a very considered a very severe situation. Frequently patients will be initially admitted to the ICU until they're more stable. Um, DK accounts for uh, 14% of all hospital admissions um, of patients with diabetes, 16% of all diabetes-related fatalities. So that's significant. Um, almost 50% of diabetes-related admissions in young persons are related to DKA. And um, like we said before, it's frequently observed during the diagnosis of type 1 um, and is often indicates the diagnosis of type 1. Have we mentioned like the actual kind of cutoffs as far as where we typically see hyperglycemia and all have you gone through those already only the 250 milligrams per deciliter would be like a minimum threshold but like i said before it can go much higher than that so um another thing to kind of watch for is a, a bicarbonate level less than 18 yeah. milliequivalents per liter i don't know if you said that one already i don't did you talk about i did that and then the ph less than 7.3 okay, cool yeah sorry i wasn't listening to that no, part you know me i like to daydream during yes. the middle of the podcast uh i do as well <laughs> all right what do you want to go from here um, you mentioned lab studies, a couple other ones um, that you would kind of want to schedule. So this is an example of what you would be doing in the initial stages. Um, so you, you want to test for blood glucose every one to two hours until the patient is stable. And then every four to six hours after that, um, serum electrolyte determinations every one to two hours until stable four to six hours after that. You're also going to want to get a BUN, um, an arterial blood gas, and then follow with a bicarbonate. Um, as necessary. I was also seeing that as far as um, treatment with the IV fluids go, you want to get those on board first and then probably not start the insulin bringing the blood glucose down until about an after an hour after you start the fluids. But we'll get into that more with the treatment. Um, once you get your, la- your electrolyte labs back, you can kind of calculate your 
anion gap to see if it's elevated or not. So your sodium plus your potassium uh, first, and then looking at your chloride plus your bicarbonate, and then subtracting those two sums together. And if that's greater than 10, it's more of a, considered a mild case. If it's greater than 12 milliequivalents per liter, that's going to be more moderate to severe cases um, of uh, presence of an anion gap. Um, the other thing to keep in mind, too, is if you get a CBC, uh, even if there's not a active infection, um, sometimes the CBC will show an increased white blood cell count um, in patients that are in DKA. Uh, so a high white blood cell count, um, or if they have like a marked left shift, can um, definitely suggest underlying infection. So you'd want to rule that out, but it still can be elevated even without the infection. Right. So you got anything else before we talk about treatment? Um, plasma osmolarity, um, you've mentioned already, you know, don't get, not getting confused with osmolality. Remember that from chemistry? Mm, that was fun. Bring that up for a second. Yeah. Just to give me PTSD. Yeah. Freaking undergrad. Whenever we talk about fluids, it gives me a little PTSD too, truthfully. Yeah. That's, I don't blame you. Yeah. Um, pancreas labs, so amylase, lipase. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you mentioned those or not, but that'd yeah. be a good one to get to kind of help rule out like things like pancreatitis. Um, and real, realistically, um, they may be elevated even in the absence of pancreatitis, especially amylase. So it's not like a definitive differential diagnosis, but something to still look at. Right. Um, the, you know, typically, they'll get like a chest x-ray or something as well to evaluate to make sure there's no pneumonia present, since that is kind of a driving factor sometimes in DKA. So mm-hmm. um, chest radiography. So lots of uh, different things, maybe even MRIs and things like that. Right. Looking for cerebral edema. All yeah. that cool stuff. I go on all day about running a CT machine, so I don't even get <laughs> Is started. that right? Yeah. So much knowledge about that. So as far as treatment, uh, we mentioned that correction of the fluid loss is going to be critical, especially initially. Um, so IV fluids are what you're going to want to go with. Uh, probably normal saline, or you could also use lactated ringers. Uh, as far as schedules, it kind of depends, but here's an example of one. So you would want uh, to administer about one to three liters in the first hour of fluids, um, an additional liter the second hour and for the following two hours, and then about one liter every four hours, depending on the degree of dehydration, um, what your readings of central venous pressure are, and if you feel like they're getting a little more uh, clinically stable, um, you know, you can continue that. If the blood sugar decreases to less than 180 milligrams per deciliter, um, you would probably want to replace the isotonic normal saline with a 5 to 10 percent dextrose solution with half isotonic sodium chloride. Uh, reason being, if you decrease the glucose too quickly, there is the risk for um, hypoglycemia, especially when you start with the uh, insulin because they're probably going to have a increased insulin sensitivity versus where they were, you know, a few hours ago uh, with the return to a more normal fluid status. Um, after initial stabilization with isotonic saline, um, you can switch to half normal saline, 200 milliliters to one liter an hour. Um, so like I was saying before, the insulin probably want to start at about an hour after the fluid replacement. Um, this will start, uh, so you can allow for checking of potassium levels. The insulin may be more dangerous, less effective uh, before some fluid replacement has been obtained, and uh, you want to keep an eye on the potassium uh, after that as well. 
And um, you may have mentioned this already, but they typically are using short-acting insulin to correct the hyperglycemia. Yes. So they're not. You're not going to give them uh, Lantus and then sit and watch. Right. We want that sugar down. Uh, let's see. What else can we go through? Yeah. Just a little more on the insulin too. So yeah, um, short acting. Um, so you don't induce hypoglycemia or hypokalemia uh, because it can be observed in higher dose ranges. Um, the of course we're doing IV uh, at this point, subcutaneous insulin. They've actually compared them in this situation. Um, they both end up working, but the results uh, with the sub-Q insulin um, are much delayed. So in one trial, the DKA resolved six hours after um, the IV um, insulin was used. So the IV is definitely going to be preferable, especially because sub-Q absorption is decreased because of dehydration. So that'd just be another reason uh, not to delay the absorption of that. Um, Optimally, we would want a rate of glucose decline of about 100 milligrams per deciliter per hour. Um, preferably, don't. Let, so I mentioned that 180 milligrams per deciliter threshold with the fluids. Um, in the first four to five hours of insulin treatment, you really don't want the glucose to go below 200 for similar concerns for uh, hypoglycemia as well. And then keep potassium kind of uh, on base if you need that. But if your potassium's over six or around a normal range, you wouldn't need any potassium. Yeah. So if, uh, yeah, if potassium six, they actually do not want you to administer it because it's gonna definitely uh, it's already elevated. So right. it's not gonna come down too much, most likely. Um, and then they're gonna want to continue to monitor serum potassium levels hourly. Um, if the infusion must be stopped, you know, if the potassium level is greater than five, you're gonna stop the infusion um, to make sure that they're not continuing to go up. Right. So our short-acting, or I should say our rapid-acting insulin options uh, are insulin aspart, which is Novolog, uh, Lispro, which is Humalog, and Glulacine, which is Apidra. And then you can use uh, short-acting insulins if needed, which would be regular insulin like Humulin R and Novolin R, though I think the rapid-actings are a little more common. And then the only other things you probably need would be potassium, potentially, um, and a bicarb in certain situations, but that's... Um, unusual yeah and that's going to be like if the patient's really severely ill they got right. you know some sort of a sepsis or lactic acidosis as well right then so, you could think about that so it had, they have to be in rough shape to yeah. need the um the bicarb uh, obviously if there is some sort of a concurrent infection we want to make sure we start proper antibiotics treat that as well make sure if we can get rid of the underlying cause that would be ideal so, um, you know, looking for types of uh, diabetic foot infections or pneumonias, things like that. Yep. So long term, after you've gotten them more stable and they're leaving, um, frequent blood glucose monitoring at home is going to be important. Um, this would allow them for uh, to have, you know, promptly search for reasons of unexpected hyperglycemia um, before they progress to DKA. If this isn't an initial diagnosis of type 1 diabetes, then you're obviously going to want to root out what the cause might have been, whether it's inadequate um, insulin therapy or just missed doses, uh, pump failure, whatever it is. They'll probably need counseling on that. If it is an initial diagnosis of type 1, um, I would suppose you probably have a um, diabetes education team who would come in and um, counsel them on you know, what they're going to be doing going forward. So they're probably going to be going out on new insulin regimens and um, potentially other new medications depending on their age. But, uh, yeah, it's obviously going to be a um, 
kind of substantial for them leaving the hospital. Definitely important to kind of monitor while, especially in the initial kind of uh, initiation of therapy and watching for cerebral edema. So that's a potentially major complication. Um, And it can happen really anytime. Um, And it's usually something we think about in children. Um, It's kind of like the leading cause of DK mortality in children, but it can happen to adults as well. Uh, And so something obviously to monitor uh, very closely and, a lot of times we'll see that if we've had, um, if you've see, if you've if have a patient that's been given bicarbonate, or if you've been uh, aggressive with the fluids, or you've given hypotonic fluid resuscitation, those can all kind of lead to that cerebral edema, and um, they can lead to rapid deterioration, especially changes in like um, mental um, capability and, and mental response, but even though the metabolic situation is actually improving, the patient's, uh, um, seems to be declining from a cognitive standpoint. So right. they'll get an MRI and make sure that there's not anything like that going on. Yeah. Um, other complications, cardiac arrhythmias, pulmonary edema, um, other ones we haven't mentioned, diabetic retinopathy mm-hmm. is, uh, microvascular changes are definitely a concern in this situation and, uh, going forward. Anything else on that? I'm trying it's to like, think if we have a, anything else on this before I go to HHS. A gross overview. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, uh, as long as you can get them in quickly before it's progressed too far, it's manageable. Easy. But um, having a hospitalization for DKA is going to put you you know, at increased risk going forward for subsequent hospitalizations and um, poorly controlled diabetes. So preventing this is an important outpatient step. So proper patient counseling, um, and you know, adequate adherence is always important. I think that's for students listening to, I think kind of just summarizing again, that's a question I know for sure. I've seen at some point or another, either on boards, practice questions or whatever, but when they talk about first step in treating DK, I think a lot of times students will automatically think we got to correct that at that glucose level being so high, but fluid resuscitation being and correcting the dehydration first, that's definitely like a board type question. So put that in your mental toolbox and save it for Netflix. It's what we do. We fill those mental toolboxes. <sighs> so many tools. Like a like six of them. It's like a massive black and decker toolbox. With like six tools in it. There's just a lot of room for more tools, obviously, <laughs> but like, you know, we do our Got best. Got a whole garage. We hit the we hit the clearance rack. Yeah. That's what we do. That's what you get. Uh, so that's DKA. So, what is HHS? Uh, I wasn't too familiar with the distinct differences between these two, but uh, there definitely is one. So HHS again is hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state. Um, so this is the second serious metabolic derangement that can occur in patients with diabetes. This is more related to type two diabetes, and uh, the reason being is this is a severely elevated blood glucose. Um, but without the acidosis, so without the ketosis. And the reason being, there is some endogenous insulin uh, that is drawing the glucose into the cells and using that for energy so they don't have to have the lipolysis and the free fatty acid breakdown leading to the ketosis. So that's the the long and the short of the difference between the two. Uh, But you will see some differences as far as labs and that sort of thing. So for a patient... Um, to have this, I will say that it's just most commonly seen in elderly type 2 diabetes patients who have um, something else going on, some concomitant illness that leads to a reduced fluid intake, 
so for example, a patient with decreased thirst perception, they might be institutionalized, or for some reason they have a reduced ability to drink water. Um, the most common reason is an infection. So an infection um, will lead to an illness that's going to increase um, glucose, lead to uh, dehydration, and lead to this severely increased elevated glucose state. Um, so you're going to see hyperglycemia, hyperosmolarity, dehydration, but without the significant ketoacidosis. Um, their glucose, so we mentioned with DKA, a threshold of 250 milligrams per deciliter or greater. In HHS, it's going to be much higher. So it's going to be 600 milligrams per deciliter or greater. Um, serum osmolality uh, is going to be increased like 320 milliosmoles per kilogram or greater. Um, the serum pH is going to be above 7.3 because they're not going to be acidotic. Um, the bicarb concentration is going to be more normal, so greater than 15. And you're going to have very little, if not absent, ketonuria and ketonemia. Um, you can have alterations in consciousness. Uh, this uh, condition actually used to be called something different. It used to be termed hyperosmolar hyperglycemic non-ketotic coma, uh, which is very specific. However, the terminology changed because the coma was found and fewer than 20% of patients with HHS, so they decided we're going to make a name that makes a little more sense. Kind of reminds me of myxedema coma, because you, you don't, are you always in a coma with myxedema coma? Every time. Every time. No, okay. I'm just kidding. I don't no. know. It's like the severely elevated mm -hmm. um, thyroid, but yeah. anyway, sometimes I think they're not in a coma, and they still are diagnosed with myxedema coma. Could be wrong about that. Somebody correct me. Um, but yeah, that's the main thing. The glucose is going to be severely elder, uh, elevated. It's mainly in elderly type 2 patients whereas DKA is mainly in type 1 patients, and the glucose does not have to get as high before you see um, the acidosis, the ketotic state, which is going to lead to all the other issues with dehydration and that sort of thing. So while we were finishing up, I just had this story kind of pop into my head a few weeks to share this. Here we go. Me and some of my friends. Now, I'll give you a little uh, insight into my life. I have a very... Um, broad range of my friend group starting from on one end of the spectrum of very intelligent people that are in the healthcare field all the way down to people who are I love them to death but they're just not that smart and you know they're really good at other stuff and uh i watched a conversation happen one time on in folly beach where one of my buddies who's in healthcare also has type 1 diabetes and I were talking about when he first got diagnosed, he had, um, you know, DKA. And mm -hmm. he said, you know, I had diabetic ketoacidosis, you know, blah, blah, blah. And this, I think I wanted to, another buddy of mine, who, you know, like I said, love him to death. But he joins the conversation. He says, I don't see what the big deal is, man. Like, I'm always in a state of ketosis because of my diet. <laughs> and, like, watching my buddy's face... Um, try to like figure out how he was going to explain <laughs> or whether or not he even should bother. He's like, it's like, bro, I'm not on a keto diet. He goes, yeah. I'm not doing the Atkins diet. <laughs> he goes, my pancreas doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. That guy was like, dude, you're so lucky. Like it's so easy for yeah. you to go into ketosis, man. I got to work hard you're for that. Always shredding those cars, man. It's all oh, you say so jacked. Oh, uh, it was, it was hilarious. I just like, I didn't say anything. I just kind of looked back and forth at both of them. And the one guy was just like, Oh no. That's awesome. Yeah. It was great. So, anything else for this stuff? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Cool. This, this was, uh, yeah, this, I'm surprised with all the diabetes talk we've done. You know, we haven't done much with type 1, and I've got to say. Or gestational. Or gestational. Yeah, I was reading about that the other day, so that'd be interesting. Show off. Um, the, you mentioned that guy with type 1. It is really fascinating um, with how complicated type 1 can be for a clinician 
just to imagine how complicated it is for a patient who does not deal with medical stuff at all. I mean, it's really a significant um, disease state, though. A lot of, some people I know have parents who have type 1 as well, so they're able to kind of walk them through that. But yeah. And they usually have this diagnosed early, so they have a significant support system. But still, it's very difficult. Absolutely. Yeah. Good deal. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. And uh, if you have any questions, as always, our emails will be in the show notes. Um, you can reach out to us on any of the social media platforms. Um, Instagram's our favorite hangout spot. I think we've kind of established that by this point. Um, it, we picked the one that has the most followers to be our favorite. <laughs> so just makes us feel good. And uh, yeah, so if you have any questions, please reach out to us. I also want to take a second to thank you guys who have been supporting us on Patreon. That is... Yes. I, I'm, it's like shocked at how many people have been signing up. It's been like every single week we get more and more people. Um, if you're not familiar with it, it's uh, the link will be in the show notes, but patreon.com um, slash coreconsultrx. And I'm basically posting up uh, lectures that I do for like my PA students. Um, so like we just finished cardiology, so those lectures are getting posted up. Um, I'm also uh, – you can download the slides, the PowerPoint slides that are associated with the lectures. They're about – hour hour and a half long or so i've been trying to do at least one or two uh, of them a week to to post up on patreon and so it's like three dollars a month and i've said this before too if you're a student you can't afford three dollars a month shoot me an email or just ask your friend to split it with you and you just share and pirate it that way that's cool too we won't tell Cole. <laughs> yeah, don't tell me. Um, if you want to text us directly, uh, reach out to us on uh, our phone number is 415-943-6116. It is a texting platform only. So if you call us, I'm not going to answer. I had one guy, literally, I don't know whoever it was. I just said guy. It could have been a girl. I don't know. Probably a dude. He's like, I should talk to these guys six times in a row. I'm like, I can't answer this phone. It doesn't work like that. So I was like texting, like, hey, what is the question? <laughs> Please don't sell me anything. So if you had a question, shoot us a text. We'll try to answer you back as quick as possible. And uh, all joking aside, thank you guys so much for listening and support. Uh, it means the world to us. We uh, got some cool stuff coming out, hopefully, in the next couple months that we'll fill you in as, as time kind of passes. So a lot of cool stuff to hopefully wrap up 2020 with, um, even though we're technically only halfway done. And what a year it's been. I know, for real. But uh, yeah, so thank you guys so much, and we will catch you next time. Later.